Father in heaven, we are incredibly thankful that you've called us to do more than treat bodies as important as that is. You've called us to more than alleviate disease, but you've called us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And so as we discuss today, we pray that you'd guide us, that you'd direct us, that we would be drawn closer and ever still closer to you, that you would open our eyes and open our minds. May this time together this afternoon be incredibly profitable. May it make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we will close the doors there so that we are not distracted outside. We can maybe leave one open and then close the other one. That's fine. That'll be good. Our class is Christ's Methods in the 21st Century, and we're raising the question, what were Jesus' methods? And so we're going to start with a journey with Jesus through John's Gospel. John's Gospel really is a case study on how Christ related to people. In John chapter 1, the two disciples are following Jesus, and Jesus turns and sees them, and he says to them, what do you seek? Those four words are some of the most powerful words in all of the Gospels. John 1, verse 38, Jesus turns, he sees them following him, and he says, what do you seek? The reason these words are so powerful is because they are the very modus operandi of Christ. They present Jesus' method. Jesus always began where others were, never where he was. He always began with their needs, never with his needs. So Jesus is saying, what are you seeking? Are you seeking relief from physical suffering? Are you seeking emotional peace and calmness? Are you seeking Forgiveness? Are you seeking power for deliverance? What do you seek? So this is an incredibly powerful principle for all medical missionaries. We are always looking out of ourselves. You know, somebody said anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. So we're looking out of ourselves, looking at the person to whom we are ministering, saying, what are you seeking? Now, this is the Jesus model. He's asking, what are you seeking? What's going on in your mind? What's in the deepest recesses of, of your heart? What are your needs? Where do you hurt? Are you experiencing pain? So the Jesus model is one that always starts where the individual is. It never starts where we are. It always looks at their needs. It's not wrapped up in our needs. Jesus began with others' agenda, not his. He was more interested in their needs than his own. So Jesus always begins where people are, not where he is. So in a busy practice with people coming through your office, the bottom line is not profit-driven, it's people-driven. The bottom line is not merely how many patients do I see, it's how many people do I help. And there's a vast difference between that. In the typical medicine of today, it's motivated by profit. You need to see as many people as possible so the bottom line of profit can be enhanced. But that is not the ministry of Christ. Jesus is more interested in people than in profit. He's more interested in their needs than he is his own. He begins where they are, not where he is. Now, when you look at John chapter 2, 
John chapter 3, John chapter 4, and John chapter 5, you have in John's gospel, Jesus meeting a variety of needs. First, we look at the story of the wedding feast of Cana. There was an enormous need at the wedding feast of Cana. The host of that wedding feast was socially embarrassed. Let's suppose that your daughter was getting married, and the conference president was in line to receive his non-alcoholic bubbly grape juice and to eat his vegetarian, vegan, chicken-like sandwiches. And let's suppose you ran out of bubbly, non-alcoholic wine. And let's suppose you ran out of veggie chicken. And let's suppose that the conference president had driven three hours to be at the meeting. And there are 50 people behind him. And there's nothing now to eat. How would you feel? Would you feel pretty embarrassed? Would you pretty feel pretty chagrined, pretty red-faced? At the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, there was a specific need. And the need was social. Anybody that ran out of wine at a Jewish feast would be incredibly embarrassed. Now, don't get nervous that this might have been alcoholic wine. There are multiple indicators in the text itself that it was not. Um, and we will not go into all of that because that's not my main point. But don't get nervous about that. Jesus created the unfermented, pure juice of the grape. But in John chapter 2, Jesus met a social need. Now we go to John chapter 3. The need is not social, it's spiritual. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And as Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, Jesus does not offer him a hydrotherapy treatment. Neither does Jesus invite him to a cooking school. Neither does Jesus offer to give him a massage. Neither does Jesus offer to give him some of the wine that was left over in John chapter 2. Why is it that Christ approached the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee and did not give a sermon but multiplied the changed the water into wine, and why is it that Jesus did not begin with health with, the, with Nicodemus? Because Nicodemus's need was spiritual, his felt need. Now, everybody's need is spiritual, but, but, but Nicodemus sensed that. So Jesus met him on a spiritual level. Jesus said, you must be born again. He cut through the formalism of religion. In John chapter 4, there's a different felt need. It's not social or spiritual, it's deeply emotional. A woman at the well comes to Christ. Now, notice the difference between John 3 and John 4. In John 3, Nicodemus is a man. John 4, she is a woman. Nicodemus is a Jew. She is a Gentile. Nicodemus comes by night. She comes by day. Nicodemus is a man of well repute. She is a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus is popular in society. She is unpopular in society. Nicodemus comes seeking spiritual things. She has no interest in spiritual things at all. When you look at John chapter 4, her need is deeply emotional. So you're looking, we can shut the door there now, please. Thank you so much. Um, 
her need is deeply emotional. She has felt like a plaything. She has lived with at least five men. And now uh, the one she's living with is not her husband. And Jesus tenderly ministers to her needs and offers her something that can satisfy the inner needs of her heart. In John chapter 1, Jesus begins where people are. He says, what seek ye? In John chapter 2, he meets social needs. In John chapter 3, he meets spiritual needs. In John chapter 4, he meets emotional needs. When you come to John chapter 5, he, we have the story of the man by the pool of Bethesda. And there, you know, Beth in the Bible means sign of or house of. And Esda means mercy. Like Bethlehem, for example. Beth is sign of or house of. Lehem is bread. So Jesus, the bread of life, came to the house of the baker. Uh, Beth Seda. Seda is fish. Beth is sign of a house of fish. So Jesus calls his disciples to be fishers of men at Beth Seda. So it's a Sabbath, surprisingly enough. And Jesus comes through the sheep gate. Now, the sheep gate was the place that they brought all of the sheep through that gate to the temple to be sacrificed. So Christ walks through the sheep gate, John 5, verse 1, the living sacrifice, who gave not only his life in death, but gave his life in life, the one who poured out his life for all humanity. And most of the religious people on Sabbath are going to worship, and Jesus comes to this place that is despicable. The suffering, the dying are here. The desperate are here. And Jesus finds a case that is the most desperate of all the desperate. A man that's been by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And Jesus comes and he makes this house of destitution, this hospital of desperation. He makes it a place of mercy and he heals that man. So what do we see? in this Jesus model. The title of our class is Christ's Approach in the 21st Century. We see that Jesus always begins where people are, never where he is. We see that Jesus is looking out for the needs of people. They might be social needs. They might be spiritual needs. They might be emotional needs. They might be physical needs. But Jesus cares for the total person, whether that's socially, spiritually, emotionally, and physically like he did to the man of the pool of Bethesda. Now notice another principle. Jesus says to the man, do you want to get well? All of wellness begins with the desire on the part of the individual that they choose, they want. Now if I had been lying there for 38 years and Jesus said to me, do you want to get well? I would have looked up and said, what are you crazy, Jesus? I mean, sure I want to be well, but here, Amazingly enough, Jesus looks and he says, do you want to get well? Why did Jesus raise that question? Here's the reason he raised it. Jesus raised the question because he wanted to evoke a response on the part of the person. Even if the individual had just this little ability to choose, Jesus was drawing him out. So when we are working with our patients, when we're working with those people who have such desperate needs, we look beyond ourselves. We look beyond our tiredness. We look beyond the productivity 
We look to that person and we're thinking what physical, mental, emotional, spiritual needs do they have, and we're trying to evoke a response of choice upon them. Jesus' method of evangelism is find a need and meet it. Jesus touched people at the point of their deepest need. Now, Ministry of Healing, page 143, Ellen White puts it so clearly, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. What's another way of saying this? Jesus interfaced with people, looking for their needs, wanting to bless them. He showed his sympathy for them. He cared for them. They knew he cared. He ministered to their needs, won their confidence, and then he bade them follow me. Notice the steps, though. He mingles. He's not aloof. He is interfacing. He's concerned about people. He shows his sympathy or his compassion for them. He ministers to their needs. There's a confidence that's developed, but Christ isn't content to leave them there. He bades them follow me. As we minister to them in loneliness and heartache, their minds are going to be open to eternal realities. Uh, something happens when you meet the needs of an individual. Something happens. You know, last Sabbath afternoon, we were treating people. We had about 30 dentists. We had physicians. And we had students from the medical school. And they were underprivileged that were coming in, refugees. We have 150,000 refugees in San Diego. And I was going from person to person. And I would kneel by them just as their teeth were going to be treated or as the physician was going to work with them. And I'd talk to them a little bit as I knelt there and say, would you like me to pray with you? And it's amazing to see the hearts and minds that are open at that particular point. I, had, I prayed with Muslims. I prayed with Hindus, prayed with Christians and atheists and others. And uh, you see how God opens the heart. Now, there's a difference between felt needs and ultimate needs. Um, it may be a felt need that somebody has to quit smoking. That's the perceived need they have. It might be a felt need to lose weight. That is a, a felt need. They may come to you because they have a high cholesterol and they're 30, 40 pounds overweight. And uh, they've just had a coronary bypass surgery and uh, they need help. Uh, they may come to you because their felt need is a happier marriage, and you're talking to them about their headaches, you're talking about them, their insomnia, and you see as you probe a little bit more that the issue is marriage, and so there is that, that felt need there. The, the felt need might be alleviating pain, and uh, the person may come to you and they have this felt need because they have continued aggravating pain. The felt need might be the need for a cure for heart disease or, or, or cancer. They may have been diagnosed as having melanoma and uh, been diagnosed as having a lymphoma or some other form of cancer, and they're in stage one, and they need real help, and they come to you, and, and they're asking about the options. That may be their, their felt need. The felt need is the one the person's interested in satisfying now, but there is an ultimate need, and that's what the person needs most in the long run. Reconciliation with God is our ultimate need. One cannot be truly healthy unless, or truly whole, unless they understand their integration of the relationship with God. Now, Martin Siegelman was the former president of the American Psychological Association. He wrote a book called Authentic Happiness, and he makes a statement that's incredibly powerful. He says, legions of people in the middle of great wealth are rich but aimless. They are full of doubt about everything and starving spiritually. It's interesting from the former president of the American Psychological Association, he recognizes that there's this, this spiritual need. 
Philip Cushman is another American psychologist, and he concurs that prosperous and individualistic society has constructed a self that is fundamentally a disappointment to itself. So here's what, he, here's what Cushman is saying. He's saying, in the society that we live in, in Western world, which is North American Europe, that we have constructed a self that's fundamentally a disappointment to self. One of the most powerful statements that I've ever read on, uh, is from an Australian epidemiologist. And he's summing up the human spiritual dilemma in his book, Well and Good, with these words. He said, filling up an empty self is a poor substitute for the meaning derived from deep and enduring personal, social, and spiritual attachments. As a result, our society is realizing that it has been running on empty and is seeking to rediscover a deeper spiritual comfort. So here's Eckersley, and he said, look, we are running on empty because our quest in materialism, our quest for a better home, our quest for a nicer car, nicer clothes, that has not filled up this empty spiritual void inside. Christ was interested in much more than opening blind eyes. He longed for people to see divine realities. See, Jesus, he wasn't content merely to heal the woman with an issue of blood, of physical affliction. He longed to evoke a response of faith from her heart. He wasn't content to heal withered arms. He longed to heal withered souls. He wasn't content to, heal, to merely heal diseased bodies. He longed to heal diseased minds. Now, let me pause here. There are those that have a misunderstanding of a statement that Ellen White made and as the result of that misunderstanding, they, do, they tend to be weary of approaching the spiritual. And here's the statement. Ellen White says we should serve with disinterested benevolence. Have you ever heard that statement? And so here's how some interpret that. That disinterested benevolence means that I don't approach the spiritual and superimpose my spiritual values on others because then I would be manipulative. See, that's, that's their idea. I have looked up, if it's not every reference that she's ever written on disinterested benevolence, it's very close to every reference. When you read the statement disinterested benevolence in context, it has absolutely nothing to do with introducing the spiritual. Here's what she means by disinterested benevolence. That I come with no personal desire as I approach that individual for personal aggrandizement or to benefit myself solely from my contact with them. That when I come to the person, I come selflessly. I come unselfishly. I come pouring out myself to them. May I suggest to you, though, that the research indicates today that without approaching the spiritual, we leave people powerless in lifestyle change. That there are very few people that are going to have lasting change in their life without tapping into divine power. Now, there are few people that have very high willpower. And they're going to go out and job. They're going to go out and change their diet. But it's not the majority. The majority of people struggle to implement the lifestyle modalities that we suggest. We suggest that they go on a better diet. 
And they begin that process, but four weeks later, many of them are off. We suggest that they get exercise. And their New Year's resolution is to, to have great exercise. And they do that for three or four weeks, and then they're off. It's like Shakespeare said. He said, no, Mark Twain. Mark Twain put it this way. He said, it's not hard to stop smoking. I've done it a thousand times. You know, it's not hard to stop smoking. I did it a thousand times. So here's the, here is where the spiritual matters. It matters in many ways. First, the spiritual matters in helping people to grasp a power that is far beyond their own ability to enable them to achieve lifestyle change. When they're able to tap into God's power, when the weak, wavering will is united to the divine, omnipotent will, lifestyle change occurs. I began to tell you a little bit about our early ministry. I was greatly blessed, my wife and I were greatly blessed in our early ministry 45, 46 years ago to work with Pastor O.J. Mills in Hartford, Connecticut. He was a pastor who understood the importance of integrating physical, mental, and spiritual dimensions. In those years, in the 60s, the five-day plan to stop smoking had just come out. And as, it, as the five-day plan just came out, and it just uh, was being processed, we were told not to integrate the spiritual because it may knock, it may have people put up walls. And so we might pray before we went on, but we really didn't say much about spiritual things at all. As the result of that, we were quite shocked when after we were promoting that 84% of the people quit smoking in five days, we were shocked when the state of Connecticut Dr. Barrett, who was the health director at the time for the state, told us that at the end of a year, at the most, 24% of the people were off. We were quite devastated. And we began talking about what can we do. And over the years, what I've discovered is this, that there is a way to help people over addictive habits that is far more effective. Now, let me, I'm going to share that with you but before I do, I need to give you this caveat. What I'm going to share with you is incredibly powerful, but it does not work with everybody. And the reason it doesn't is because you're going to have people that have little or no faith. The people that this will tend to work with are people that have come from some Christian background. And I understand that. So there are times that you begin with the physical. And it's absolutely essential. And by doing that, by beginning with the physical, you break down prejudice. But it is rather fascinating. If you have your Bible or you have an iPad, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 9. It is really fascinating to me. You know, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, Matthew 9, verse 37 and 38, it, it, it outlines the ministry of Christ. Matthew 9, verse 37 says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. So this talks about Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as a preacher, Jesus as a healer. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, you have five case histories that are given. Five of them. 
And we learn from those case histories how Christ worked with people. Here is something that I've been doing recently in my Bible study that's going to be helpful to you. When you look at the parables of Christ, don't look at one parable. Read the two parables before, the three parables after. Often you'll have five parables in a row. And say, what is the golden thread that runs through these parables? The same with the miracles. Rather than looking at one miracle, look at all the miracles in the chapter. And you find that here in Matthew chapter 9. There are five miracles. There's the miracle of the paralytic that's brought to Jesus. There is the miracle of the two blind men. There's the miracle of the woman with the issue of blood. There's the miracle of the little girl that died. There's the miracle of the demoniac, all here in this chapter. Now, I'm going to show you something absolutely amazing. Look at Matthew chapter 9. And then we want to apply these principles. Matthew 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed. Point one. The paralytic never would have came unless somebody brought him to Jesus. It takes somebody to bring somebody to Jesus. If you count all the miracles in the New Testament, there are about 30 to 33, depending on how you count them, miracles in the New Testament. Separate individual healings, not counting the time Jesus healed whole cities. Of those 33, two-thirds of the time, somebody brought somebody to Jesus. So what is this telling me? It's telling me that when I meet diseased and broken and bruised and sick people, somebody will bring them to Jesus. Okay. Now notice what it says, verse 2. And behold, they brought him a paralytic on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, Jesus seeing their faith. Faith is something that you see. It's not simply something that you believe. Faith is always manifest in some kind of action. But notice whose faith it is. It's not the faith of the paralytic here. Now later, Jesus will say to others who are healed in this narrative in Matthew 9, he'll say, as your faith be it unto you. But this is not the paralytic's faith. Whose faith is this here? Whose faith is it? His friend's faith. There are times that the people that you are dealing with, Dr. Mark, have little faith, and they have to fly on the wings of your faith. See, there are times that you're going to deal with people, and I've had this happen so many times in my life. I remember I was helping Carol quit smoking, and I, I said to Carol, Carol, she had, was coming to our meeting, she had a Christian background, and I said, Carol, how long have you been smoking? She said, Pastor, I'm in my late 20s, early, I think she was in her late 20s. She said, Pastor, I started when I was about 16 years old. I've been smoking for 12 years. Carol, how much do you smoke? Oh, a pack or two a day. Uh, Carol, do you believe God can help you to quit? Oh, yes, I do. But, Pastor, the problem is not with God, it's with me. I know God could help me to quit, but I can't. I'm so addicted to this. I read to her the passage in Scripture, 1 John 5, we'll look at it later. And this is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I said, Carol, the confidence isn't yourself, it's in him. This woman was so weak, so feeble, that she just did not believe at all she could quit smoking. And so I had to say to her, Carol, whether you believe you can quit or not, I believe you can. I know you can. And I told her stories about hundreds of others. 
at the beginning of our conversation, her, weak, her faith was so weak, she had to fly on the wings of my faith. I believed she could quit. When you treat your patients, and you're talking to them about lifestyle change, unless you believe that God is going to give them power to make that change, their faith won't be strong enough. So Jesus saw the faith of those that brought the paralytic to Jesus. Now there's something else here that just jumps right out. Jesus says, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Why is it that the first parable in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, why is it that Christ looks at them and starts with the spiritual? Here's a paralytic. This guy doesn't need his sins to be forgiven. He needs to be healed, right? But Jesus starts with the spiritual. Why? Because when you go through this narrative, every one of these stories, there are times Jesus heals, then forgives. Time he forgives, and then he heals. In the ministry of Christ, physical healing and spiritual strength are never separated. You, you don't see that that division in the ministry of Christ. You see this, this blending, this integration. So the idea that we present the physical and then maybe a seminar on the spiritual. The idea that I talk to somebody physically and then maybe somehow bridge to the spiritual. You don't find that in the Gospels. Jesus went back and forth, physical, spiritual, spiritual, physical. So when I teach stress management, for example, the first night in a stress management course, I get up and say something like this. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad you're here. You notice I was a little late because my knees were knocking. I was shaking. I was full of stress. No, then I laugh. You know, and they laugh with me. You know, the first time I ever taught a stress seminar, it was in Boston, Massachusetts. I was young and foolish and didn't know I couldn't do it. And uh, came to Boston. And uh, when I came to the stress management seminar, there were about these 50 business people in line with their suits and their attache cases. I thought I was going to die of a stress heart attack when I walked into that class because I had never taught before. But you know, when I teach people to reduce the stress in their lives, I'll walk on and say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I am so delighted you're here tonight. And you've come because you want principles of how to manage the stress. And uh, is stress good or bad? Is, is there anybody here who doesn't have stress? You know, the only people that don't have stress are dead people. So the fact you're here, that's a, that's a real good thing. It indicates you're alive. And, uh, you know, we're going to approach this from a variety of levels. We're going to approach it from the physical level. I'll give you every physical modality that we know of to reduce your stress. We'll approach it from a psychological and an emotional level. We'll also approach it from a spiritual level. And you may wonder about that, but the scientific research indicates today that those that find rest and peace in God have a much uh, lower stress level. So if that's something that uh, is difficult for you to relate to, uh, just tune out when I come to that portion. That's no problem. If I just see your eyes closed and sagging a little bit, that'll be no problem. See, so use a little bit of humor. But I let people know in the first five minutes who I am. Don't try to hide that at all, that we're dealing with physical, mental, spiritual. And they know immediately that the spiritual modality is going to be part of the course. If you're upfront with people like that, if you're very honest with people like that, um, as you'll see a little later when my wife talks about nutrition classes, we're very open about spirituality and nutrition classes. Now, the material that I'm going to give you now, how to help people overcome addictive habits, works best if a person has a spiritual background, or it works best if you bring them to that point. I might not use this initially with people, but I use it 
very regularly. And here's the change that has taken place in my thinking in the last probably 15 years. You do not drink water. I'll use smoking as an example, and then I'll come to other addictive habits. You don't drink water and take deep breaths and uh, avoid caffeine to get off tobacco. That the victory over tobacco comes by faith in the living Christ who can transform your life and give you spiritual power. And that there's a difference between the craving for any habit and the victory over that habit. God gives people victory instantaneously by faith. Not because they walk, not because they drink water, not because they quit caffeine. He gives them victory instantaneously by faith. When they understand that, there's a new spiritual power that comes into their life. The reason they walk, the reason they drink water, the reason they eat a healthy diet is to sustain the victory that Christ has already given them by faith. So it doesn't mean that I minimize the physical modality. I encourage them to walk, encourage them to drink water. But they're not doing that to achieve the victory. They're doing that to sustain the victory. They're doing that so that the craving, and, and we teach them how to separate the craving for the habit and the, uh, the defeat because they've failed over the habit. In other words, because I have victory by faith doesn't mean I won't have a craving for tobacco because tobacco's been deposited in every nerve and tissue of my body. Because I, because I have a victory by faith over drugs doesn't mean my body's not going to cry out for another drug. So we lead them in this context, in a deeply spiritual approach, to have victory by faith. Then we go over the physical modalities so they can sustain that victory. Now this works much better if a person has some faith to start. And you're going to find many people like this. So we're going to pass out these sheets. And maybe I can have a couple people just help me here to pass these out on either side. And, and then I'm going to just review this with you and give you a chance to ask me some questions. But this may be one of the most powerful things that you get in this entire seminar. How do you help people overcome addictive habits? And I actually give them this sheet and we review it together. I've seen hundreds of people have victory over tobacco, alcohol, drugs, and a variety of other things as we have, have done this. So I'm going to go over it with you in the next 15 or so minutes, give you a chance to ask some questions and give you a break. Okay? How do you help people overcome addictive habits? We're short. Okay, can somebody look on together? Okay, here's some over here we still have, okay? And then maybe some can look on together. We have a few. If you don't have one, just lift your hand. If you're a husband and wife together, uh, you can. Yeah, we, we should have, because I thought I printed enough. Okay, there's a few folk in the back. We've got some left here. Sure, there are plenty. Okay. When I'm helping a person to quit smoking, let's, I'm going to use smoking as an example, but you can use any habit. So we're, before I give the, this to them, I want to go into the interview with you of how the interview goes. So we're talking a little bit. I might ask the question, 
Are there any habits in your life that you're concerned about that you wish you could give up? Now, notice the question. The question is a critical one. Are there any habits in your life that you are concerned about that you wish you could give up? Um, and the person says, yeah, there, there are. You know, I, I've been smoking, and I'm really kind of concerned about it. What makes you concerned? Well, you know, I've begun coughing so much, and I have this burning feeling in my chest. Would you like to quit smoking? Is it something that you really want to do? Is it something that you'd really like to do? It, it really is. Have you ever tried to quit before? Yes, I have. And how have you done? Well, I haven't done really well. May I share with you an approach that may surprise you, but it's an approach that blends the physical, the mental, the spiritual. Yes, you can share that. Well, I have something I want to give you. Now, notice how I got into that. Did you follow that process? Clearly. So I asked them. We're talking about together. And I say, is there, is there anything in your life that, any habit that you'd really wish you could overcome, but you feel uncomfortable, that, that you maybe have tried and you failed on, something that's harmful to your health? Uh, yes, Pastor, there really is. Uh, will you want to share it with me? Do you notice what I'm doing? At each point, I'm asking for the person's permission so we can go to the next level. And so is, would you like to share that with me? Yeah, I, I really would. Um, why are you troubled about your tobacco? Are you noticing any physical symptoms? You know, I am. You know, I, I, I'm short of breath. I used to be able to run much more. Uh, in addition to that, I, I'm noticing that I've got this little cough. Uh, have you tried to quit before? I, I have. How have you done? Well, I haven't done well. If I did well, I wouldn't be asking you about it, Pastor. Um, I, I'd like to share with you some things that I've discovered over the years in helping hundreds of people quit smoking and, or overcome alcohol or overcome drugs. And it blends the physical, mental, spiritual approaches. Can, can I share that with you? So I've gotten their permission. Sure. Well, here's something I want to give you. And uh, let's start with number one. Recognize that this habit, this smoking, is a sin against your body and, and your God. You know, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do you sense that your habit is not in harmony with God's will? Is that something that's clear to you? They'll usually drop their head and come up and say, idiots. And then I, I have to give them a little reassurance at this point. So I'll say, you know, we all have habits in our life that we sense are not in harmony with God's will. At least some of us do. And, and uh, the fact that you've recognized that is really a critical fact, you know, because all change begins with positive choice. And so the fact that you've recognized it is, is a significant thing. Uh, let's read that passage together. So let's suppose you're the person now. So we're reading together. I, I beseech, let's read it together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let me explain a little bit about the text. He says, I beseech. What's another word for beseech, anybody? Can you give it to me? I urge. So he's urging. This is something that he's urging. Therefore, brothers or sisters, present your bodies. If you want something really interesting, there are different words in the Greek language for bodies. The word here is somata. What's the word? Somata. And here's what it means. Your physical mental, spiritual, and emotional beings. So here's what he's saying. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your somata, that is your physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional beings. Somata is a big word. 
what English word do we get from Samata? Yeah, the sum. The sum of all your being, the sum of all your parts. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm urging you that you present the sum, the totality of your being to your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Another word for service here is, which is a reasonable act of worship. So what he's saying here is, present the sum of, your, of the totality of your being as a reasonable act of worship. So notice how we've gotten into this now. We've, what is the first question we've asked the person? What's the first question? Is there any habit in your life that you sense is not in harmony with God's will and that's harmful to you? And the person says, oh yeah, there is. You know, it, it, it's smoking, it's drinking, it's this, and this, it's this. And then we move from there, is this something you'd like to, to, to give to Jesus? Is, is this something you'd like to, to give up? Have you ever tried before? Then we move in. You recognize that the habit is... A, can I share with you a method of physical, mental, spiritual? Okay, number two, acknowledge your weakness and your inability to quit on your own. Do you recognize that this is something that is too strong for you to deal with on your own? Um, and then I read this with them, like the woman with the issue of blood in Scripture, you may have sought help for years. You remember she had an issue of blood for 12 years, like the man by the pool of Bethesda. For 38 years, you may be desperate and to overcome your habit. You know, John, how old are you? 33. Well, you've not been smoking for 38 years yet, have you? Oh, no, I'm only 33, Pastor. Oh, you know, this man by the pool of Bethesda, he was there for 38 years. Do you think he felt kind of hopeless? You think he felt kind of discouraged? You think he saw other people maybe have been healed and he never was? Have you ever felt that way? You've thought, you know, I'm 33 years old. I've been smoking for 18, 19 years. I, I've got a burning in my chest. I, can't, I won't be able to walk up the mountain with my grandkids and won't be able to hike with them. And I'm just kind of desperate. You know, 33 years I've been practicing this. I, I just am so weak. Admit, acknowledge that inability that you can quit on your own. First, recognize it, that, that your body is, is God's temple, that the somata, the sum of your parts, are God's. And uh, notice that you want to give your body to him as this act of worship. Acknowledge that, that you're weak. You have this inability. Now look, number three. By faith, believe that although you are weak, he is strong. Although you cannot do it, he is all-powerful. When we choose to surrender our weak, wavering will to his all-powerful will, all the power in the universe is our, at our disposal. Now I want you to take your Bible, if you haven't, and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. This habit, my drugs, my alcohol, are a sin against my body and against God. God wants the best for me, and I'm simply destroying my life. I want to acknowledge my weakness, that I cannot in any way quit this thing on my own. It's totally impossible. But by faith, although I believe I'm weak, he's strong. Remember, I was talking to you about Carol, and um, I was going over these principles with her, and we read 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him. Carol, where is your confidence? Is it in yourself? No. Is it in your strength? No. This is the confidence we have in here. In who? In Jesus. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it Christ's will for you to overcome this habit? Yes, pastor. It's his will for me to overcome alcohol. It's his will for me to overcome tobacco. Is it Christ's will for you to overcome this? Yes, it is. Notice what it says verse 15, and if we know 
It says, verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And she said to me, Pastor, I am so weak, I don't know if I can overcome. I said, okay, I'm going to help you. Get your pen, and I want you to write something in your Bible. And this is what I want you to write, and this is going to really help you. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, except quit smoking, he's going to hear us. She said, Pastor, I'm not writing that in my Bible. I said, well, what do you mean? Because you're telling me that you want to quit, but you don't have the power, but you don't believe God's going to give you the power. So really what you're telling me is that the Lord made a mistake in writing this text in the Bible, and therefore it says this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, except quit smoking, he's going to hear us. So write that in, please. She said, Pastor, I'm not writing that in. I said, well, you have one of two choices. You either believe the text or you don't believe the text. She said, Pastor, I don't know if I can believe it, but I want to believe it. I said, that's all that God wants. That's all that God wants. That's all he wants from you. This is the confidence we have in Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will. And then at that point, when we're on number three on your sheet, I begin to explain how the will functions. And I pause there and I say this. I say, look, you don't overcome smoking or alcohol or drugs by willpower. Your will connects you to God's power. So the will is the choice to receive a power outside of myself. For example, suppose I'm in this room and I've lectured too long and it's 11 o'clock at night and it's dark. And my friend Phil Mills comes in and he said, Mark, where are you? And I say, look, it's dark. I can't find my way to the door. And I say, Phil, I've got an idea. Dr. Mills, let's push the darkness out. So we work for an hour to push this darkness out. Doesn't work. Pretty soon, Dr. Mark comes along with three brooms, and we try to sweep the darkness out. That doesn't work. Somebody comes along with shovels, and we try to shovel the darkness out. Now, we work with four hours, for four hours. Did we put in any effort? I'm sweating. I've taken off my jacket. But did I achieve anything? Is there as much darkness in the room after I've been pushing and sweeping? My wise, intelligent wife comes, and she says, Mark, come over here for a second. She puts my finger on a little tiny switch on the wall, and I throw that thing, and light comes on. What took more effort, my four hours of work or my throwing the switch? Took more effort, the four hours of work. But, but, but why did the throwing the switch work? Because it connected me with a source of power, right? So it's not that I struggle for 30 years trying to have willpower to exercise, study for 30, 30 years trying to get up enough strength to overcome smoking. It's not that at all. It's that when the weak, wavering will is united to God's all-powerful will, miracles happen. So what we want to do with our patients is kindly, gently, lovingly, when they're dealing with habits that are overwhelming them and they're so weak, to help them to get in touch with the, power, the greatest power of the universe. Okay, number four. You surrender yourself and all of your habit to God. So that's, at again, at each point as we're going through this, I'm reading texts. I'm talking about the power of their choice, not to overcome, but to surrender their habit to God and to give their will to Jesus. Usually it takes me about an hour to go over this. If I'm teaching it in a class, which I've often done in my evangelistic meetings, I'll spend two or three nights at times on this. So we're teaching people how to surrender. What does it mean to surrender? Then we go number five, believe that victory is yours now and thank God right now for giving you the victory. This is probably the most critical point 
And you're going to look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God, 1 John 5, 4, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, follow me closely. Victory over any habit does not come because of the physical modalities that you practice. It does not come because you drink water. doesn't come because you get exercise. Victory comes by faith when we grasp the hand and power of God. We believe by faith that the victory is ours now, instantaneously, immediately. I am victorious by faith in Christ through his power. Okay? Now, next paragraph. Let's read that paragraph together. This is what we're telling the person. You ready to read? Under five paragraph. You may have a craving to smoke. Let's read it together. You may have a craving to smoke as the result of the physiological effect of nicotine deposited in the cell system. But you need not smoke. Smoking is a what? Choice. There is a difference between the craving and the victory. The victory is yours by faith in Jesus. This is a critical distinction because people, you lead them to have this faith in Christ, but then what happens? Two hours later, three hours later, they have a craving and they say, oh, I don't have the victory. The craving and the victory are two totally separate things. The craving is the result of nicotine deposit in the cell system. The craving is the result of alcohol that I've besottered my brain with. The craving is the result of the, the marijuana, the drugs. So the craving and the victory are different. The victory is mine by faith, but physiologically, I'll have to deal with the craving. Number six, we tell people to destroy all their tobacco, all their alcohol, to throw it away. On one occasion, I was with some seminary students. Some of you have heard me tell this before. And uh, I wanted them to come with me because I had been studying the Bible with a couple. I was going over these principles with them that their bodies were the temple of God and to surrender to God and teaching them how to receive God's power. And we had agreed that that night that this couple would do away with all their alcohol. They were working in a hotel setting. He was a night clerk in a hotel and she was working. And they always wanted to own their own hotel, their own motel. And um, they had begun to drink quite a bit. They weren't alcoholics, but they certainly were quite dependent on alcohol. And so I took my seminary students said, come with me. So we came and I began to go over those principles. And when I came to number six, I said to them, if I agree to have a party with you tonight and we party, and alcohol. If I agree to do that, if I agree to do that, are you willing to um, party with me tonight? They said, sure. So I said, okay, get all your alcohol. So they got all their whiskey and their, all of their um, beer, their Budweiser, and they got all their different alcohol and brought it and put it on the table. And I handed a can of Budweiser to one seminary student, a can of Budweiser to the other kid, and they, you know, they were shaking, you know. And, and then I said, okay, let's open up everything. So we opened it up. I think I had Johnny Walker or something and, you know, opened up. And then we began to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I sent some people to the sink to pour it down and some people to the toilet to pour it down. You know, we were just pouring everything down and gathered around. The whole place was smelling of alcohol. And, and we just had a great time that night. About 15 years later, um, I got a letter. It is written television. And the letter started like this. My secretary came in and said, Mark, I don't want to show anybody this letter, but you better read it. The letter started like this. Dear Pastor Finley, do you remember the booze party we had? <laughs> and then they said, I've been clean ever since that night. 
No, it gets worse. It doesn't get better. What year did we do the 2000 and Orlando? The last Orlando Net series. 2008, so six years ago, we're doing our first or our second Net event, satellite event in Orlando. It's the opening night of the meetings. The church is packed. And I walked onto the platform, and a, an old lady was walking down the aisle in a walker. And she yelled out in front of the church, Pastor, you remember the booze party? And I said, oh, lady, please. I never knew she retired in that area. And, but she had never forgotten that, how God gave her victory that evening. So I could tell you many a stories. We get people to throw away their tobacco. It's based on James chapter 4. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil. So they submit, but they resist by getting ready. And then number, five, number seven, uh, believe that the victory is yours now. To sustain the victory, thank God for it. We teach them how to praise, how to thank God. Then... Praise him, you're delivered, and follow the physical habits listed below to rid your body from the nicotine, drugs, whatever. So we tell them, when you get a craving, take deep breaths. I teach them how to time their cravings. We know about timing the cravings. Usually the major craving takes three minutes, so they time it for a minute, then they wait, time it for another minute. Um, we get them to take two 30-minute walks every day, taking deep breaths. When people get bad cravings for alcohol, tobacco, we have them get in the shower. If they have a shower in their house, it's hard to smoke in the shower, so we help them to do that. Um, but we get them uh, drinking 10 to 12 glasses of waters a day for the next five days. Why? To sustain the victory, to sustain the victory. Victory is theirs in who? Jesus. But they still have a craving. We don't want them to fall back. We get them to relax in a warm, not hot bath before going to bed, help them to have at least eight hours of sleep a night. We talk to them about that. We get them avoiding all caffeine and alcohol, get them on good fruit. So here's the difference in this approach. The difference in the approach is this. We lead them to understand how to receive God's power by faith, and we do the physical modalities to sustain the victory that God has given them. If you have an opportunity, now you can't do this with everybody because there are some people that are just not ready for this, but if you can, it's incredibly This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.